This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Welcome to this podcast edition of NEC Dance with Kathy Levy. Kathy chats with tapper extraordinaire Michelle Dorrance on the eve of Dorrance Dance's National Art Center debut on October 14 and 15, 2016. Michelle tells us about her early exposure to tap legends and to cutting edge artists, her tap career and interest in the history and tradition of the art form, and her lifelong commitment to education. I'm today with tapper extraordinaire Michelle Dorrance. I'm so excited. I've been sort of stalking you all over the United States <laughs> to make sure I can get you to come to the National Arts Center. And we're having this chat on the morning of the beginning of two shows in the NEC Theatre, October 14th and 15th. I'm thrilled to introduce you to our audience. Welcome to Ottawa. Thank you so much, Kathy. I love Ottawa so far. It's incredible. You're here at a great time of year, too, with all the fall oh, colors and everything. I love it. I love the fall. It's my favorite season. It's beautiful. You're a hard woman to catch up with. You are so busy. I'm hard to catch up with my own stuff as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's incredible how your career has exploded. But before we talk about that, let's go back a little bit. Um I read, of course, a lot more about you uh, preparing for our discussion today. I was reminded that you're the daughter of a ballet dancer right. and a champion soccer coach. I love soccer. So tell me about that. Tell me what that was like growing up with two parents who are into these very physical and artistic careers. Um, I so admire both my parents um, and that they were both so good at what they do. Um, also, both young. My dad was an athlete his whole life. My mother was a dancer her whole life. And... That they both, my mom, you know, it's very hard to succeed as a ballet dancer professionally, that she danced professionally and that my father was uh, the coach at, at one time of the United States Women's National Team. And then, of course, he has a great legacy as a university coach. I knew very young what my aptitude at those two things were, even though I did love them both and so admire them. I knew, you know, in at, you know. 12 years old, probably a little younger, that I wasn't an international caliber soccer player. and <laughs> Though he probably made you play a, quite a bit no, on the, the kids' no, teams, no? Yeah, I mean, honestly, from neither of them was there ever any forcing, and I think that may, might have also lent um, you know, me to discover my own passion for what they both did. But, you know, and I had, my mother uh, would always go, oh, honey, you have your father's feet and legs. Like, I knew I had flat feet. I knew I didn't have the flexibility that comes naturally with someone who's going to, you know, excel in that direction. So, um, but I feel very lucky because of what they both exposed me to. So, 
Um, you Where know, were you now, growing up? Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Right. Um, so, and my mother taught. Actually, there's the big joke is that my mother taught at Duke University. My father coached at Carolina. There are two. You know, I don't know other Canadians are as familiar with these kinds of rivalries, but that's like one of the oldest. It's the oldest public-private university rivalry in the state. So let's just put but that out there. But for American football, no, or for soccer, just period, period, any oh, okay. any sport you name it. It could be a you know um, a ping pong you know tournament at a recreational level. And oh, it that's would be a huge funny. rivalry. Yeah. So all that to say, um, my mother taught dance at Duke, um, and that's also the home of ADF performances every summer. So as she American uh, exposed Dance me, Festival, exactly yeah, American fantastic. Dance Festival. So she exposed me not just to ballet in her own um, productions and creations of different story ballets that really enamored me that processed it. Um, she also, you know, took me to American Dance Festival every summer and, you know, I was exposed to Palabolas and the great, you know, um, American contemporary and modern companies at, you know, young, a very young age. I read um, that she was a dancer with Elliot Feld. She so did. I imagine she lived in New York. She did. That she lived period. in New York. She was a dance. very influential um, dancer and choreographer, I guess, in the 60s, 70s, more yeah, so? I yeah, would, and I would even say through, in part because I per, because of my mom, I pursued seeing his work through the late 90s, early 2000s when I, li- I moved to New York. Um, I, I learned so much from Elliot as a choreographer, whether he knows that or not. So, um, yeah, I was really grateful for that influence as well. But, yeah, so both my folks, everyone says, like, oh, you're kind of like a great combination of both your parents. They're both very musical as well. My dad was a drummer. My mom, of course, exposed me to a ton of music. Um, and so I think tap is sort of the intersection of both my musical interests and my dance interests because it is such a musical form. It's funny because sometimes parents can, you know, kids can run in completely the other direction. So right. it is really interesting. It, what, but there's still, I guess, in dance, a bit of a distance between ballet and tap, is there not? Uh, it's It's huge in part because you are so responsible for, like, your sound is almost, and this is sort of the nature of tap dance as an art form, a musical art form. You are just as responsible for yourself as a musician as you are as a dancer. So, you know, whereas a ballet dancer or a contemporary dancer could interpret a phrase with a, a, a timing that is slightly different, let's say, you know, and that might mark a soloist and a principal dancer from the core, you know, um, you your timing has to be impeccably acute. Otherwise, you're you make everything sound a mess. So just that that priority and that you know my my mentor had a great tap teacher at my mother's school and that was part of the reason you know I think I excelled so young um he always said something like the form follows the function so the the actual look of tap dance isn't necessarily a placed port de bras it's a lift of the upper body in order for the lower body to stay off the ground but inches from the ground for a number of counts so that you can actually execute movement while you're in the air but you're close to the ground. So just those so ideas. Some of those biomechanics might yeah. be similar or related but uh, executed in a completely different way. Exactly. So knowing your body in, in the way that you learn things classically, that you train classically, is incredibly important. But the execution and the look, the aesthetic of tap dance is very much because of the music that you make. Did your mom see that in you? Like when you when that, that first day that you put on tap shoes or those first classes, did she say, oh, okay, she might have the legs of her dad, but this is a tap dancer in the making? They were, yeah, everyone really encouraged me. I think uh, before I really remember I was improvising, I remember my teacher saying, oh, well, you were improvising at this one audition for the youth ensemble when I was eight years old. And wow. I don't I don't recall it, but I guess it was just something that I loved and felt that natural. I mean, and I, I don't ever remember people say, Often dancers or musicians or someone, there's this turning point where someone says, when I first saw Gregory Hines, that's when I decided to be a tap dancer. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, when I saw Gregory Hines, I was even more enamored with tap dancing or, you know, the first time I saw a movie musical or the Nicholas Brothers or whatever. Um, But there was never a point at which I didn't think I was going to be one. 
And that's not to say I thought it was going to be a career. I just knew I would never stop doing it. So Even my love age, for it, so yeah, my amazing. love for it's just been innate. So when did that kind of turn happen? I mean, obviously moving to New York City when you were 17, there was a very intentional reason that yeah. you did that. So take us back there, that place where you said, okay, this this is something that I'm going to really make a bigger part of my life. Well, I so I was, um, Gene Medler, who I mentioned before, my mentor, is the director of the North Carolina Youth Tap Ensemble. So I was really lucky, especially during the 90s, where this was happening in only a very few you know cities in the United States or in the world. Um, there were an occasional really strong youth program that would kind of come out of its shell and go to these tap festivals. So there were these early festivals that were a gathering of the community of artists that were tap dancers as opposed to what people now know as, you know, competition conventions and things like that. This was a place where you could meet Jimmy Slide and Henry Latang and Jenny Lagan and Faird and Harold Nichols before they passed away. Like these incredible masters of the form we're here, you know, I remember Fred Kelly coming to one just because he wanted to hang out with everybody. This is Gene Kelly's brother because Gene Kelly had passed away. Wow. He just wanted to see all the old guys because they were all there. Uh -huh. So, you know, at a young age, you know, Gene took us, this youth ensemble to study at these festivals, which were these gatherings of these incredible, you know, master legends. And then also young cutting edge dancers like Savion Glover. So that's where I was first exposed to Savion was the St. Louis Tap Festival when I was 13. So we, I don't know, it was just... That changed the game. It changed the game for our own practice and technical execution. It changed the game for the direction that the company went in. And I think this is another reason I'm so, I came back to company work, um, A, because I love choreographing, but also because this is like the root of what I've done. He would seek out different choreographers in the field. And we had this rep that no professional company had because, you know, we were they exposed were tap choreographers? to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Brenda Buffalino, Savion Glover, Sam Weber, Barbara and they Duffy, would make, make works for this ensemble. Ted Levy, yeah. And it was how lucky were we as teenagers to be able to perform this this caliber of tap choreography, which just rarely even existed in a, a touring capacity at the time. So, all that to say, I knew that I was going to New York. I looked at colleges and universities only in New York City because that's where I wanted to tap dance. And as most people might know, tap dance is not embraced in the, you know, institutionalized or in the course of academic, higher higher learning academic studies. So not yet anyways. Not yet. No, no, no. And, and there, <laughs> yeah. that's not to say there aren't a handful of universities that are prioritizing it. Oklahoma City University is one of the longest standing ones. But okay. um, so it does exist, but we are pushing for it to, you know, be further embraced in right. that direction. We'll come, come back to that after. But it is exactly. interesting because I'm old enough to know that, you know, somewhere around the late 80s, there were a couple of dance presenters. I remember a woman in Colorado doing an all-tap festival season. Yes. And then it sort of seems to have gone away. We even had a, a national tap dance company in Canada for a very yes, long time. Yes, exactly. Um, run by Bill Orlowski. And, but then it seemed to have kind of faded a bit and then come back. Is is So you're moving to New York, you know, at the at the at the tail end of this whole thing, I think, if I get your age right. And there's you, you're, you know you want to tap, you know you want to go to university there. What did you find when you got there? Did you find it being an art form that was getting to that place of being more Oh, embraced? it was so exciting at the time. I mean, I, what I can acknowledge from what you're saying, that 1989 or 90, those festivals in Colorado, that really changed what we did. My, my mentor went to that. Colorado okay. Festival. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, no, it's so, great. No, and he came back and said, I was an apprentice at, on the National Dance Project at the time, and we were oh, all saying, cool. wow, a tap festival. That's so cool, right? That's yeah, awesome. So, yeah. No, so yeah, that I feel like the maybe the national support was dying down, but at the time in the mid-90s, and then I moved in 97 to New York, 
bringing the noise, bringing the funk had happened. Right. And so the fact that there was this huge, like, epic and revolutionary, really, Broadway show with tap dance that no one had ever seen the likes of before. You know, and Savion Glover, as a young, I don't even know how old he was at that point, 22, when he won the Tony. Mm -hmm. Like, I may be one of the youngest choreographers to ever win the award. So, and, you know, just also the way the the history of TAP was sort of told through the African-American experience is also so important. And for for people to understand the development of the form and that it truly is a black form and where what its roots really were. And, um, you know, sort of our unsung heroes in the form were sort of acknowledged in this musical as well. So, and that was so exciting. So there were there were incredible dancers, jam sessions, um, things happening in jazz clubs. There were there was so much activity at the time in the late nineties in New York City specifically. So and maybe that was one of the only places that it was that exciting, but boy was it you know, there was just cutting edge stuff happening. So that it was the place to be. So what happened to you there? You you go there and you you're you're soaking up all this information, you're like a sponge, but at the same time you're starting to perform and eventually choreograph. What ha- what happened? Where did the evolution of Doran's dance come 10 years later? Um, okay, so the, I mean, originally, you know, I also went to NYU. So every once in a while, like school would sort of take over my time. You know, I had to try <laughs> yeah, to graduate. Yeah, to marks. Yeah. No, but, um, That's an uh, incredible American uh, ethic. I mean, I rarely meet Americans who didn't go to some kind of college program, I, you know, which is great. I mean, sometimes they don't necessarily do what they studied, but right. obviously you were doing something that was related. Well, no, and that's actually that that I could uh, pursue a course of academic study that it was not dance um, was really exciting. I was first going to be a philosophy major, but I found my way into Gallatin, which is the School of Individualized Study at NYU, and you essentially create your own major and defend it in front of a panel of professors in a colloquium. So you, you yeah, you have wow. to, yeah, yeah, it's sort of, it's more like a master's thesis, even though it's an undergraduate degree, but um, so what I was excited to do and what my advisor there, Lauren Rakin, encouraged me to do was, so I was focusing on the manifestation of democracy and an American ideal of democracy. Like what, what is, what do we really aim to, um, manifest politically and how does that affect us? And then my sort of minor focus inside of that was art and social change. So tap dance was sort of this democratic art form. It was the blending of cultures before, you know, slaves were free. So before democracy really existed, this form was happening at the very, the lowest level of, you know, human beings in the United States were creating this form under oppressive <laughs> circumstances. And that, if there's an unstated American dream, it's that despite your, I mean, I guess this is sort of part of the idea of the American dream, but you can come from the lowest, you know, um, economic echelon, or you can come from nothing and create something. And that, you know, this art form sort of, I don't know, was an unprecedented, you know, it's the first American as far as not first peoples, but the first, Amer- you know, in- immigrated American form. Mm-hmm. And that to me was really exciting. So I sort of got to talk about that inside of, you know, That's very, very little bit, but inside of my course of academic studies. So, but at the same time, when my senior year was wrapping up, this is when Savion Glover asked a number of us to start performing with him. So that, you know, I, I had danced with a handful of different um, really teachers of mine because, you know, I came I went to New York to study with these folks that were there. Um, so that was that was a huge turning point for me being able to work with him and also another uh, teacher of mine, Barbara Duffy. So there were no, and then I then I literally would work with so many different kinds of folks. You know, I was teased often for working in so many different ensembles, but I didn't give, I didn't prioritize my own 
choreographic voice, which I was very excited about. What was the teasing about, though? Uh, just that I danced with everybody. Okay. You know, tap slut. Well, they I feel were like smart. Was one of those. They yeah. all <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that kind yeah. of, I don't know if I should have said that on this recording. That's but, all right. Uh, you know, <laughs> we won't beep you out. Yeah. So, uh, but no, the idea that, you know, but what I was really seeking out was a lot of different experiences under different, very stylized directions. So I learned quite a bit about different approaches to choreography, you know, to choreography, different approaches to musical interpretation, different physical interpretations of the form. And, um, but, you know, I mean, I think any, a lot of people in my generation can say, you know, Savian had such a huge influence on all of us. Was he sort of the first, I mean, I, I wonder because we might've had a more populist sense of tap through musicals, mm-hmm. not necessarily, I mean, bring it to noise, bring it to funk, as you say, also gave us a, a huge historical perspective as right. well as paying tribute to many, many individuals who influenced the art form. But would you say that he was one of those folks, one of those choreographers who changed the discussion away from tap being something to service the Fred Astaire type musical Mm. and be much more of a contemporary expression? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, and in a very unique way as well. So, yeah, I think, I mean, Savion also, and I think Gregory sort of pioneered this and then Savion took it and ran with it. Our musical sensibility changed as well. So awesome. not just, well, we're, you know, tap is often uh, married or paired with jazz, mm-hmm. as it should be, because the two really came into popularity at the same time. But tap predates jazz music. So it was, you know, originally maybe um, closer to an African sensibility or even a European Irish sensibility and then came into swing, which honestly, people credit tap dancers for creating, you know, original stride pianists say, well, I was imitating that tap dancer. So and that this happens throughout jazz and its history. Bebop, bebop drummers who the horn players cite they were imitating the drummers, the drummers cite who the honest ones that they were imitating the tap dancers. So tap has been this catalyst musically for musical forms, you know, through the ages. But then you have the music sort of moving in a new direction with rock and roll and funk. And then you have someone like Gregory and then Savion bringing a funk sensibility to the form. So it became so much more contemporary in part because the music of tap dance became this much more syncopated, funky feeling thing. So you have it being fresher, literally, and then physically the way it's being executed because of the the music inside of the movement changes everything completely. So, you you know, I remember when I went to interview at Marymount um, and not to throw Marymount under the bus, but when I went to interview there um, when I was taking a look at universities in New York City, this woman who I'm sure has since <laughs> left the university, so this is not to we won't mention her name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but she said to me, "Oh, well, we don't do that down and dirty tap dancing like Savion Glover." Oh, yeah. Ouch. So no, but that just that that idea that Savion was this like kind of rough, you know, rebel in the yeah. form retrograde. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That it it re- it really did change the um the public's perception of what was possible with tap dance and that I, that I think was also really significant. So the difference also is you're you're dancing with these folks, you're dancing with Saving, you're dancing with others and they are making the steps, I guess. Or are they also using what you and other dancers can be virtuous at with your technique? To create the choreography. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another thing that was really exciting is that Savion is was so rooted in our history. I mean, he had his experience in. I won't get into t- too great a detail because I know we don't have too much time. But he was inside of. He was in a musical called Black and Blue, where these masters, were, you know, kind of almost gave him one on one attention on a daily basis. Go work on this. Hey, do a little bit of this. Like each one of them, as individual master stylists with unique voices. We're kind of feeding him this information and and vocabulary and musical sensibility. So he comes out of that with uh, like 
such a range. So even if what he was doing was cutting edge and exciting, he was so rooted in what was historical mm-hmm. and traditional in the form. That's what was exciting. Of course, he would do some things that we'd never seen before. But his he had all these references that were immediate like footnotes to these masters. So that that those two things simultaneously were so exciting, exciting to me as an artist, but also I think so important for the form. So that to this day, that's like sort of part of what I believe is most important about the way we push forward now. There's no abandonment of of what we've done historically or what we're rooted in. And I think because the the masses aren't as familiar with tap technique or execution as they are with, let's say, ballet classical technique, a critic can can see a sickled foot. But you know what I mean? Or a line that's broken or something like that, whereas people are less educated about tap dance. So we continue to bring and embody this tradition that is so important to us, but also because it's, it, you know, we stay on the backs of those who came before us. Like this is the root yeah, of us. I'm, I'm, I'm still curious, though, to push the idea of when is it recreating what you've learned and when is it new choreography? Oh. Do you know what I mean? Like that sense that Sabian is taking or and now very much you are taking this incredible physical memory and physical history that right. you have that in some ways is being passed down. Right. But you're like, I guess, what contemporary ballet is trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, where does that new language come from in this art form? You you danced it with Sabian and now right. you're creating an incredible well, signature yourself yeah, no, as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, yeah, I guess, so some of it is, you know, material as as per any vocabulary that you've known since you were five years old or eight years old. And then you sort of learn folks' different approaches to that and that vocabulary grows in part because tap dance is not so codified that it can't be almost invented on the spot. And I think that it is an improvisational form and that I choreograph an improvisational form. That is really exciting to me because... I can find something improvisationally that I've never done before or I think has never been done before. I mean, there's always that idea as well. And I see things constantly in the improvisational dancers, both that I work with and my peer dancers in the world. I love seeing something that I think has never been executed before that happened in that moment because that person was pushing themselves to the edge artistically, technically, musically. So I think that is still possible. And infusing what we discover in those moments into choreography is so exciting. And providing that improvisational opportunity inside of choreography to me is also incredibly important and exciting in a greater, you know, choreographic work. That's fantastic. I mean, yeah. and I mean, there you have, I mean, particularly what we're going to see this weekend and what we've seen, we will continue seeing in your work with the company. You have surrounded yourself by dancers who themselves have an incredible range and incredible personality in their work so I can see that feeding off and perhaps when that improvisation happens you're saying stop that's what I want that's the snapshot that I want in the piece yeah every once in a while I'll say that please like please hold on to that don't like don't lose your intention or don't lose where you were in that moment and then sometimes you know that thing will never be recreated ever again. And I'm excited to see what will happen, you know, in the next incarnation of the next night. And there are a number, particularly in this show that we're about to do tonight, ETM Double Down, there are a handful of moments that are so emotional that that, that really changes the dancer's intention inside of those improvisational moments. Okay, so well, let's talk about that. Yeah. This is about, what, your fourth or fifth major work that you've done since you officially started Dorrance Dance just a few years ago? Yeah, that's right. That's incredible. And as I said earlier, I've been chasing you around trying to get you to come, and this is a perfect work to introduce your signature to our audience because you're showing such a range. Tell me how this work came about because it's so technically and artistically varied and and rich it really is no it is it's dense and it's 
totally nuts. And the and the reason it is is in part because um, I there's a dear friend of mine who dating or going back to what we were just talking about with the tap festivals. I met him when we were teenagers at the St. Louis Tap Festival. So he and I have known each other since we were 14, 15. We're a year apart. Um, his name is Nicholas Van Young, an incredible tap dancer, a virtuosic, really, truly technician as a tap dancer. Um, he also used to be a young modern dancer, oh. um, but also a body percussionist and a hand and, and kit percussionist. So he's like well versed in percussive language. Then he's a, a bit of a mad scientist and he likes playing with and, uh, you know, experimenting with different electronic ideas inside of tap dance. So originally he was trying to come up with a miking system that allowed him to perform with this incredibly loud live band that he was working with. So he was working with contact mics and then he was working with, um, you know, using different interfaces to distort the sound or to enhance the sound and then happened into working with this program called Ableton Live. Um, where you can assign essentially, you know, he created this small electronic drum kit for the feet and you can assign each one of those quote pads. We call them trigger boards because they're handmade because we're a little low budget. But we have these, you know, handmade wooden trigger boards with little piezo elements, which are essentially contact mics that we feed through a converter that converts things into MIDI signals into the computer. So I was a little tech heavy, but some people will know what we're talking about. And um, so he started playing around with composing musical ideas live with his feet while tap dancing percussive ideas in tandem. So this and that idea already was so exciting. And so then he learned how to loop them and then he learned how to switch kits so that he could have more than just, let's say he had five boards out there. He could have 10 sounds. Oh, he could have 15. Oh, 20. Oh, actually, we could have endless sounds, but then we have to you know, bring, rain, rain ourselves back in. So watching him develop this process as a soloist. Um, I also gave our very first Doran Stanson concert, like our first full evening show where I showed a ton of work. I featured him as a soloist doing this because I was so excited about it. And um, Where was that concert, by the way? This was in, it was just outside of Boston in okay. Lexington, Massachusetts. Okay. This wonderful woman named Thel Thelma Goldberg, one of our tap community, like, you know, mothers. She's awesome. <laughs> um, she presented this show as a part of the celebration of National Tap Dance Day in the U.S., which is May 25th. Bill Bojangles Robinson's birthday. Oh, Should fantastic. Put that out there. Now right. people call it International Tap Dance Day, which I embrace. Um, so all that to say, he had this opportunity, and I said to him, you know, as he was developing different solo ideas, I was just like, if you ever want to do this on a major scale, I want to collaborate with you to create a full evening work that features this, really the way he's innovated the use of the technology, and work choreographically where we are both playing the music and dancing to the music where we are so this idea and always as tap dancers you can hear a tonal range in the percussive nature of what we're doing but we hear huge songs inside of our taps mm -hmm. you know we have an, uh, melodies in our head we have so many different things that happen that we can't necessarily communicate 100% to the audience as we're doing it this enables us or gives us that unique experience of being able to execute melody with our feet while also accompanying that with percussive sounds or a percussive composition. So that's so, the beginning of so this. So break it down for me. So a, a dancer on one of these boards, what happens? What what will people see in this show? In this show. So essentially, like we'll use a number of boards in front of a dancer so that each one of those boards has a different sound, can be executed at a given point or in tandem. So let's say a dancer is dancing behind a set of four boards. 
they can work like daga 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 da daga daga da boom ba da. They can play like one note inside of the composition, or they might be responsible for more than one note, and they're going daga daga doon doon ja daga daga. So inside it, that's actually some of the funnest stuff to figure out inside of because sometimes we create the choreography and then we layer in the melody that we were dancing right. to and then the dancer has to figure out and this is really fun and this is also why we have these incredibly smart dancers that we work with that are brilliant um we're like hey figure out what you have to omit in that choreography in order to execute that and then how can you get back in on the right foot with your weight in the right place you know so that is also exciting and a great challenge. So, so the intricate. process, it is, and the process of that is incredibly challenging. And by the time we are performance ready, no one knows how hard it was because hopefully we're executing it without fault. Right. You know, so. But you've also given space in this show to a singer, to a B girl, oh, yeah. to the musicians themselves. What made you decide to do that? Um, well, the musicians that we're collaborating with inside this work are also like really close to us as human beings um, and brilliant musicians and great, that have incredible compositional ideas as well. So um, that, you know, allowing for that musical collaboration to happen for this work, of course, we also use some pre-existing material, but it's also infused with original composition. Um, each one of these musicians also has a great ear for our sound as tap dancers. So some of the stuff was choreographed with, you know, or sorry, uh, composed with the idea that it would be for this particular kind of work or, you know, so let's say my, my younger brother, Donovan, he composed these piano pieces that he knew would be hocketed, which means each person is dancing at one note at a time back and forth very quickly. And he knew that, you know, they the notes would be lined up next to one another, literally looking like almost like the piano from Big, although not with the, the aesthetic of a piano at all. There are these little wooden boards that we're dancing on. But just the idea that he knew that there would be movement back and forth if there were only a few dancers. There was one that he designed literally compositionally to move the dancers closer and further away from one another. And that's kind of a slow kind of emotional journey. So, you know, there, just that idea in and of itself is different, a very different way to compose. So that that and, and also, you know, I have uh, Greg Richardson, this incredible. So my brother, Donovan Dorrance, Greg Richardson's this incredible bass player, also a guitar player. Who's composed, who composed something that involves himself looping his own bass and guitar playing while we're continuing to build uh, by triggering sounds ourselves in tandem with that and then dancing a composition over top of it. So this And this is very early in the show to sort of show you what's possible with a musical looping while a dance kind of looping is happening. And then Aaron Marcellus, our vocalist, we're, we feature him doing improvised vocal loops using a Wiimote, Nintendo Wiimote, which is also really fun because, you know, the kids realize they can access technology like with something that might have at home. Um, he is just such a great ear, such an incredible harmonic ear as well. Every single show, he improvises completely different compositions that, according to me and the rest of the cast, we're ready to like make sure we have a number of them recorded and put them out of an album. So we have, you know, we, I didn't realize yeah. that they changed every night. That's oh my fantastic. Gosh, so, it's so exciting to hear what he's going to do, yeah. you know, and That's he, fantastic. he also knows the, the, you know, the emotional journey that they need to take to get us to this next place. You know, so that's exciting. I, mean, as I well. don't think I'm over exaggerating when I'm saying your approach is revolutionary in, in many ways <laughs> to show this kind of to, sh to to show this kind of expression and what tap dance and music and all of these, uh, you know, the different elements coming together the way you're describing them. The bigger the bigger form that you're creating here, it's you're just pushing the envelope so far. Well, I I really appreciate that. I think I, the all I'm doing is essentially trying to bring my my favorite things together and curate it in such a way that people 
love it, like fall in love with it the way I have fallen in love with it. So that, you know, if that's my, if that is succeeding, then I, you know, that's the, that's an incredible compliment. And I think also that lends what you just mentioned lends itself to what people are like, why have a B-girl house dancer in this piece? And I'm like, wait, first of all, do you know that the original B-boys watched the Nicholas Brothers for inspiration? That like that tap dance is a, an original root for a lot of, and vernacular dance, tap and jazz vernacular dance is the root of hip hop and is the root of breaking. And then to bring that, to reappropriate that back into our form. So to see that come full circle, I think is incredibly important. And that we're experimenting in this electronic way, that also takes us into this contemporary world where street and club forms have an interface with this. So tap the original American street form, you know, turns into or infuses or influences hip hop and these other forms, house dancing, and then to bring it back into what we're doing and move forward in this electronic way, I think is incredibly important. Listen, I can't let you go without getting you to tell us a little bit about your commitment to education. And I mean, oh. I can we can hear this incredible enthusiasm in your voice and just the sense that you want everybody to love this art form and see this art form the way you do. But you've taken a really important uh, part of your work to really educate and teach. Talk to us about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in part because both my parents are educators and because my mentor, Gene Medler, was also a gifted educator, I... I grew up being so enamored with someone who could explain and inspire in that way. So I think to want to embody that, I think, was just natural and immediate. Like, oh, you know, if I can't do this, then what am I worth also? You know, so um, and that this form honestly really needs proselytizing. Like tap dance is so incredible, but so few people really know its true depth or its possibility. So that, you know, and I, I always say this and a number of my peers, I mean, I, you know, people are saying what you're doing, no one else is doing. I'm like, wait, there are these incredible artists out there, improvisational artists, choreographers moving in every direction at once. And that's what we have to do. So moving into both the like an elementary school level and doing lecture demonstrations about the history of the form, moving into the collegiate level and having that, you know, inside of not just dance departments, but American studies departments and history departments that this is, you know, the, the history of the form is really a reflection, especially in America of the history of our what's happened socially you know it's really interesting and immigration and immigration and poverty exactly and, yeah. you know civil rights racism just the mm -hmm. way that we've moved through um and are still continuing to deal with a lot of these issues so that it's just it's ever present in in the way it's important in our culture so um yeah and i i i also just love teaching i love watching someone you know, in front of my eyes, you know, understand a deeper relationship to whether it's technique or music or embodiment of something. So, yeah, it, that's something I will do for the rest of my life regardless. Um, if anything, being on the road more is hard. It's harder to have those opportunities, except for when we have these uh, engagement activities at these residencies. That's right. So I'm that's excited right. to teach the, the kids, the tomorrow. dancers here. Yeah, that's right. I'm that's so excited. Fantastic. So tell us quickly, last thought, what's the next big dream, the next big ambition for Doran's Dance? Oh my gosh. Um, I know you're getting requests from all sides, well, but no, let's we have some, some really interesting things coming up, so I should just say what they Please are. Do. Um, there is the unique opportunity to do a site-specific work in the Guggenheim Rotunda, so the famous wow. Guggenheim Museum in New York. The acoustics in there are nuts, and I accepted this immediately because I I had this great experience in St. Mark's Church, which is the very first site-specific piece I choreographed and the first real full evening-length work that I created uh, in 2013. Um, the acoustics there, I mean, you could hear your hands rubbing together 50 feet away. It's so exciting. So in, and in the Guggenheim, the way different sounds resonate in different parts of the space, you could try to clap together, like you and I, let's say we move you know, however many feet apart on either side of this rotunda. 
and we we sound like we're clapping together, but we're not to someone who's standing on the ground floor. Or we try to clap together for the person standing on the ground floor, but we're actually not sounding together from where we're standing. So just that already, that challenge and trying to decide compositionally what will happen in the space with music and dance. I'm really excited about that. So there's the Guggenheim. And um, we're also really looking forward to our first international tour. Like this is one of the, you know, handful of international dates that we've played with this work. And we're so excited to bring the works, you know, to a larger audience in part because we believe the form should be embraced by, you know, all every culture. Well, I mean, we have full houses for you in Ottawa. I'm thrilled to introduce the work. I hope this is just the first of many visits. Me too. And we'd love to welcome you back at the earliest uh, possibility. Me too. So, Good. Thank you so much for coming and thank <laughs> you for your time today. Thank you I appreciate so much. It. We're so happy to be here. Great. Thanks, Michelle Dorrance. Thank you. That's all for this edition of NEC Dance with Kathy Levy. Please send us your comments and questions by email at necpodcasts.ca. Don't forget, you can subscribe to NEC Podcasts at nec-cna.ca backslash podcasts. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.